questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. Here on the podcast, we chat with experts across many disciplines of science to explore how our interconnected world is being reshaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find us on our website at dearpandemic.org. I'm your host, Dr. Malia Jones, hybrid social infectious disease epidemiologist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory and editor-in-chief at Dear Pandemic. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Malia Jones, Editor-in-Chief at Dear Pandemic and also Associate Scientist at the Applied Population Lab at UW-Madison. And I'm here today with my fellow nerdy girl and nerdy girl-in-chief at Dear Pandemic, Dr. Lindsay Leininger. And we're going to be tackling questions from our readers today. We're having trouble with the live stream, so we are pre-recording this, but you're going to be able to watch it uh, after we post it in just a few minutes on Facebook. So I hope that works for everybody. How's it going, Dr. Leininger? Hello, Dr. Jones. I, uh, I think both of us have a little bit of vacation news, sort of. So Malia can tell you where she's uh, calling in from, but... My news is that I'm taking my first week off from Dear Pandemic since March next Woo-hoo! week. Woohoo! Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for you. Are you going somewhere? No, I'm going. Oh I'm going to try to spend as much time in the mountains in New England as possible. Oh, are the leaves changing? Oh, it's gorgeous. It's peak foliage up here right now. Oh, lovely. Well, well deserved break. That is really awesome. Thank you. I am at the Holy Wisdom Monastery, which is just outside of Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, you can get a room in the guest house at the monastery and stay uh, in a very, very quiet and very peaceful space. I come here before to write major grant proposals and papers, and I just really needed a break from my family. So I'm here for the weekend. Pandemic parenting. It is real. It's, it's real. It, it, it gets to be a lot. Yeah. The constant interruptions are getting to me. <laughs> okay, we're gonna dive into the question box today. We, as always, want to start with a thank you to our followers. Everybody submitted great questions again this week. I read every single one of them in the question box. And then we use those questions to inform what we're going to post about in the upcoming week. So we really thank you for your input on those. We got a lot of questions about indoor air quality, and I just wanted to let our viewers know that we're working on bringing an expert or maybe more than one expert on to do some Q&A about indoor air quality specifically. So stay tuned for that update. And if you're not already a follower of ours, hit the follow button now so that you get the notice about that. If you have a question, you can submit it in the question box on our website. It's www.dearpandemic.org. And while you're there, you can try a search for whatever your question is, because we've covered a ton of topics already from everything ranging from, oh my gosh, housekeeping advice to basic immunology. (laughs) Lindsay, are you ready to tackle some questions? You know I am. I know you are. Okay, (laughs) here's the first one for you. Anonymous from Dallas asks us, 
I have a son and a daughter, and each one has a young child. My daughter's family and I have seen each other safely throughout. She and her husband had COVID-19 in late June. I tested negative at that time. Their pod is limited. My son's family has a bigger pod, including a child who attends a school with small class sizes. I've limited my visits with them to outdoor small gatherings only, but how do I keep them from feeling like I'm giving preferential treatment to my daughter? Anonymous from Dallas, I just have so much empathy for your situation. Um, so first shout out to my hometown and our community members in Dallas. I'm a native Dallasite, my family's still there, and our COO, Gretchen Peterson, lives in Dallas as well. I have so much empathy. These are really sticky conversations, and what we've been suggesting, we have kind of a, a threefold rule, if you will, for how to navigate these things. So it involves kindness, it involves transparency, and it, call, it involves repetition. So let's start with kindness. I think always just leading these conversations with G son, it was her son who she can't see, correct? Or, or they, I'm sorry, we don't know if this is a woman or a man. G son, it, it is breaking my heart not to be able to spend time with you and your family. I just want you to know how hard this is for both of us. And I think that just leading with that can really help. And then transparency is really key too. And just talking about people's bubbles and what these bubbles look like. No bubble or few bubbles are perfectly sealed. There are various reasons why one bubble may or may not make more sense for you to be a part of, and you are well within your rights to choose your risk level for yourself. And I think that that is something that as long as you're transparent about the reason and open about why you feel this way, that helps too. And then again, I think returning to the conversation regularly is important because conditions change, bubbles change, exposures change. And just, you know, I, if it's helpful to know, I opened a conversation about this with our family's wonderful sainted nanny this week, where I said, can we sit down? Can we have a really open, honest, transparent communication about what our respective exposures look like? Super awkward for an employer and, and an employee, but we did it. And then I said, can we have this conversation once a month? And we walked away, I think, feeling pretty good. And I think both of us felt heard, but it's a hard thing, right? So I think yeah. kindness, transparency, repetition, and sometimes it helps to have an actual conversation guide. So if this can be your conversation guide, please use it that way. That's great advice, Lindsay. This is, these situations are, are really awkward. And I think in part because we're, we don't have any skills already for navigating them. This is not something we really know how to do. And so it just takes practice and, and open communication. Totally. And it's not one and done, right? right? This is just a continuing conversation. And it's even harder when it's with family. And sadly, this is going to be on a lot of our radars as we start navigating holidays. Yep. That's, we're getting already tons of questions about, about the holidays. Okay. Do you have one for me? It's my turn to ask you. So Marina in Massachusetts asks, we are weighing whether to send my kindergartner back to school in person, full-time, with masks and six-foot distancing at the end of October, assuming the local numbers stay low. I've done a lot of reading, 
but I can't find a study suggesting that kids transmit to other kids in an elementary school setting. Likewise, I haven't heard of an outbreak at an elementary school where it's spread from kid to kid. Is there any such study or even an anecdotal incident? Dr. Jones? Yes, Marina, first off, I have a first grader and here I am at a monastery in order to impart escape his nonstop questions. Oh yes, do I want him to go back to school in person? So I say this from a place of really understanding where you're coming from. Uh, unfortunately, I have some bad news and I also have some good news. The bad news is we do have both anecdotal and more formal scientific evidence that show that kids can and do spread COVID-19 both to each other and to adults. A study in particular, a big study came out this week that was conducted in two states in India that showed through contact tracing that children might be among the, um, might have a much larger role than we previously thought in the spread of COVID-19. The AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, also released a statement this week that showed a significant rise in the pediatric cases of COVID-19 over the last couple of months. And so COVID-19, you know, the good news is that it really has held up that COVID-19 seems to not produce serious outcomes and risk of death, at least in the short term, for children the way it does for adults. But kids do get it and they do spread it. You know, the question is, about schools specifically, this big study that happened in India was not in schools because schools in India have been closed this entire time. But, you know, looking at the situation in schools, the context that schools provide, you're indoors, um, you know, you said that the kids are going to be wearing masks. We have some questions about how well kids really do wear masks when they're in school, but they're there for quite a long time and there are a lot of people who are in one room together. And so I think that there is some risk that there will be outbreaks in, that kids will play a significant role in outbreaks in school settings. The good news here is that you say that the numbers locally remain low and you know that is the key to whether we can send kids back to school in person safely or not. If no one has COVID-19 in your community, then no teacher or child will be bringing it into school and there will be no transmission. Vaccines are one of our main preventive measures in public health and the other one is just case suppression, suppressing cases to the point where there are no cases to spread. And so you're saying that one of the things you're weighing is whether kids can spread it, they can. And the other thing you're weighing is whether cases are low enough to safely send kids back to school. And it sounds like that's, that's the good news cases may be low enough in your area. Malia, can I talk about cases in your area just for a minute? Yeah, of course. I want to, I want to reinforce the importance of what you just said. So I've had a couple of media sort of things the past couple of weeks where I've been trying to talk about this idea of circulating disease in the community is just a, kind of it needs to be what we all center ourselves in. And I've likened it to playing COVID risk protection Jenga. So if you think about all the things that we do to keep ourselves safe, right, it's layered and it's additive, but there are a few things that if you pull that piece out of the Jenga tower, the whole thing could go tumbling down. And the biggest, most foundational one is the amount of circulating disease in your community. Yep. Yeah. So you pull that sucker out of the Jenga and like 
<laughs> I love that analogy. That's really good. Thank you. Yeah, because all the other stuff that we can that we do just suppresses transmission in the context of there being a lot of virus or some virus, right? Potentially some virus. But that thing, if we can get it to the point where we have no cases in your community or almost no cases, then there is an end virus. So that other stuff just becomes just in case, you know, the masks and the distancing and so on. So that's really, that was really the goal when we were all talking about flattening the curve and the, sh the shutdown back in March and April, you know, my hope and my expectation was that we could, as a nation, suppress cases until essentially there were none. And then we just kind of play whack-a-mole when there's a case or a cluster that pops up in a localized area. But that is not how it has played out. Um, like many things, I was wrong about what was coming next over these last few months. So tragically. So I'm happy to hear that in your area case counts are low and I hope they remain low so that you can get that kindergartner to school. <laughs> I have a kindergartner, so I Yep, the struggle is real. All right, I've got another one for you, Lindsay. We've got Joel from Pennsylvania who says, I've been reading more and more from reliable sources, including your wonderful page. Oh, thanks, Joel. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> that COVID-19 is thought to primarily spread through person-to-person -person contact, and therefore sanitizing surfaces is less important than initially thought. But when I take a look at the biology, the consensus seems to be that fomite transmission is possible. Isn't it possible that the lack of cases of fomite transmission in contact tracing studies is evidence that it's difficult to identify fomite transmission in contact tracing studies? What do you think? So I love this question because there's a lot to unpack in it. It's a pretty sophisticated question, actually. So Malia and I were back channeling about it before we hopped on the Zoom. But I want to lead with the bottom line here, which is we do not think fomite or surface transmission is the primary driver of the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We know that it is large respiratory droplets, and we are learning more and more that it's also that respiratory mist that lingers in the air, which is what's called aerosol transmission. But Joel is right. All of the biologists are in consensus that in theory, the biology is such that surfaces could be a transmitter of COVID, but we haven't actually seen that played out when we look at population level data on how this has spread. So again, we don't think surface transmission is the primary vehicle for how this virus is spreading, but of course it remains biologically plausible as a transmitter. But there's a sophisticated nuance to this question that Malia and I got to geek out a little bit over when we talk about contact tracing methods and the data that, that we can, and, and how to interpret the data that arise from them. And contact tracing can actually demonstrate and parse the difference between surface transmission and between respiratory transmission when someone sneezes on you and between mist transmission. But what it has to do, it has, it, it has to tease out people who share air from people who share surfaces. Because in many cases, if you're sharing air, you're also sharing surfaces. So what contact tracing does is it carefully pieces together who has shared air, with an index case or a person who is thought to be the first to bring it into a cluster versus people who have shared services. So let's give examples. If Malia and I were sitting together in an enclosed space, masked off, and she sneezes on me and we're talking loudly and we are sharing food, 
we are sharing air, we are sharing respiratory droplets, we are sharing surfaces. So that's hard to parse out. But if I'm, or if Malia is doing her thing and she is infected and then she leaves, and I am a member of the cleaning crew that comes behind her, and I end up getting the disease, that could be a case of fomite or surface transmission, especially if I do so several hours or even a day after she's been sharing the air in that room. So that's some examples of how contact tracers work, but long and the short of it is surface transmission, possible, not the primary driver. And contact tracing is awesome because it is how we are learning about the spread of this disease and how to strategize against it continuing to spread. I, I looked up a couple of studies when I was trying to figure out how to answer this question that one of the other arguments that had been leveraged is that in the, the biology studies, the laboratory studies, they put a huge amount of the virus on the surface and then see if they can detect it later. And right. the amounts that they use are, are like literally one million times the amount of viral material that might come out of a sneeze. Right, so part of it, it's of course it's plausible, and I think it's important to emphasize we should still wash our hands and we should still not pick our noses. But Preach. it's oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> but it's just less <laughs> likely than these shared air kinds of environments, right? So thank you for that amazing question because one, we got to put out some important messages about transmission, and two, we got to geek out about contact tracing. Yeah, I got to read a, a little debate about uh, biology versus real world in arguments in the Lancet. So. Oh, very cool always, stuff. This, always is, this is what we live for, man. Um, we are so nerdy, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I get to ask Dr. Jones the burning question of the week. Oh, my. Yes. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the president coming down with COVID and specifically what we should uh, be thinking when we think about President Biden. So Dr. Jones, Joe Biden tested negative for COVID yesterday. That means he's in the clear, right? Let's just go campaign. Oh my God, the news cycle this week, am I right? It's Ooh. just landed so heavy on me. I, it's I, really intense. I think no matter your political leanings, this situation is just terrible. It's a oh, disaster. Let's get Nancy Drew on the case here with Joe Biden. Joe and the president were on stage together for 90 minutes late on Tuesday night, September 29th, in the debate. Does this qualify as an exposure? Even though, you know, you could see they were considerably more than six feet apart, I think we can reasonably call their interaction a possible exposure because they were in an indoor environment. We can presume there were not fans running because uh, there was a sound crew there that probably wanted the fans to be as quiet as possible. They were not wearing masks. Uh, and there was, you know, they were shouting and talking loudly at each other for 90 minutes in a row. That's a long time. We don't know much about what happened backstage. They might have also been exposed to each other backstage. So it has all the features of, of an exposure, except for that they were a little more than six feet apart. Now, 52 hours later, early Friday morning, the president announced he received a positive test for COVID-19. And then on Friday, later that day, the White House announced that he was having symptoms. 
if we go and look back at that timeline of the development of a COVID-19 infection at the individual level, we know that mild to moderate symptoms develop between two and 12 days after exposure. To, so to try to figure out whether, when Donald Trump may have been exposed to COVID-19, where he caught it, we have to rewind the calendar between two and 12 days. And so that puts his point of infection anytime between Saturday, September 19th, and Wednesday, September 30th. The average time from exposure to developing symptoms is five days, but we all know that Donald J. Trump is not average, so who knows? It could have been any time in that window. So the next question is, could the POTUS have been infectious at the debate? Yes, he could have been infectious at the debate because we start shedding virus up to two days prior to development of symptoms. So this is a little bit more than two days. There were some reports that he may not have been feeling well on Thursday, which would put him at two days before, uh, the debate was two days before he started to show symptoms. Now, the peak infectiousness when we're shedding the most virus is right when symptoms begin. So that's a little bit of good news for Joe. He might not have been peak infectiousness at the debate. Now let's think a little bit about the negative test that Joe Biden got. Uh, he may have been exposed on Tuesday evening when he was debating Donald Trump. He got a negative test back on Friday, which is a little less than three days later. Now, that is not likely enough time to have a definitive accurate negative test. If he's incubating an infection, and again, that could, he could be incubating for between two and 12 days, if he's incubating an infection currently, that negative test, it's a point in time. Viral material might still be replicating in his cells, and he may have produced a positive test today or tomorrow or next week. I will stop worrying about Joe Biden if he still tests negative in a week from today, which is October 10th. And to follow the CDC guidelines formally, he would need to be 14 days out from exposure, which is two weeks from the debate. So should Joe Biden be on the campaign trail? No, he should be self-quarantining. That's what the CDC recommends after a possible exposure. And I think that debate was a possible exposure. Yeah, thanks for your candor. His the campaign manager can call me, that's fine. The rules do apply to everyone. Just looking back at that debate, at the time I was kind of freaking out about the fact that they were not wearing masks, but they, they should have been wearing masks. And why was there not you know, more separation between them and even plexiglass preventing droplets and aerosols from flying between the two of them? There's been some news also about changes to the rules for the upcoming vice presidential debate. And I hope that they take this very seriously and separate, physically separate the air between the people who are debating because the last thing you need is for this to spread further through the highest tiers of our government and candidates for office in an election that is one month from today. It's terrible. We usually like to end on a good news question. That was really like the terrible news question. Why did we do but that? This is, honestly, it's authentic. This is not a good news week. No, it's not. It's been horrible. But it has been lovely to see you. Yes, and you as well. And if you have been exposed to someone with COVID-19, I hope you do like Joe Biden should. And yeah. stay home or self-quarantine for two weeks, even if you don't show symptoms and even if you have a negative test.
that's all we have time for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you next week with more Q&A. I will be with a different nerdy girl because Lindsay will be on vacation. And if you have a question, you can put it in our question box, which is on our website at dearpandemic.org. While you're there, try searching for keywords in your question because we've done lots and lots of posts on lots of practical and scientific topics. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe, stay sane. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the I Have Questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. If you have a COVID question, you can submit it on our website at dearpandemic.org. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And subscribe to our podcast, I Have Questions, wherever you get podcasts or at anchor.fm slash dearpandemic.org.